Amen, amen. What a wonderful thing to sing to the Lord, right? What a wonderful time to sing to the Lord, to commit ourselves to Him in song and say, I'm going to stand. I'm going to stand for you in, in the midst of whatever my life throws at me. I'm willing to stand for you, Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing to offer up to the Lord in prayer. Well, I am really excited to jump back into the Gospel of John. It was great to hear from Pastor Phil last week. I know everybody uh, enjoyed that. It was wonderful to be encouraged by our pastor, Emeritus. I know you love that time. I love that time. If you missed out on that, you can go online and make sure you, you don't want to miss out on that. Very, very, very encouraging message from our pastor, Emeritus. Well, we're jumping back into the series, into the Gospel of John, and we're kind of uh, packaging the next couple chapters into a series by itself. And we're calling it Jesus's Farewell Tour. Jesus' Farewell Tour. Now, why are we calling it that? Well, we're calling it that because where we are in the Gospel of John, Jesus is about to end his public ministry. So Jesus has just done his, probably his greatest miracle, you know, of course, except from his own resurrection. But right now, so far, he's done his greatest miracle, which is the raising of Lazarus. He brought somebody back to life. And after that giant moment, what we have is really kind of the, the building of the tension, the building of the conflict, that, that we get to kind of this boiling point between the tension between Jesus and the religious leaders. It gets to the point, kind of this climactic point, where all these plans and ideas to crucify Jesus now kind of solidify when the most, uh, the, the religious leaders with the most power decide, let's make a plot. It's time to eliminate Jesus. And that's where we're at right now. What will happen is we'll see through these next two chapters is really Jesus giving his farewell when it comes to his public ministry. After chapter 12, at the end of chapter 12, we move to 13. And from really 13 all the way up to 18, Jesus is not going to speak to the public anymore. He's only going to speak to his disciples. He's only going to speak to his father in prayer. And then that kind of private section ends when Jesus is arrested in John chapter 18. So we have two chapters, the ending of 11 and really all of 12, where Jesus is giving his kind of farewell address to his public audience. And again, what happens at this moment is Jesus gets even more direct about his mission. He has made it very clear. He's shown himself for who he is. Just in vivid picture, he showed by the power of his miracles and the clarity of his teaching that he is the Son of God. He has come to rescue humanity. And the opposition gets really, really strong. So strong that the religious leaders decide it's time to kill this guy. It's time to eliminate him. And we're going to see this in our passage today, that, that man's plot, this murderous plot, is going to be agreed upon. Now, I want you to do this. I want you to think of being a first century follower of Jesus. As you see Jesus just get more clear, his power more demonstrative, and you start to see the tension build, the conflict build, the opposition gain strength, how would you feel in that moment. Imagine if you heard about the plotting. You heard about the plan. Eliminate this Jesus. I mean, you've left everything as a first century follower of Jesus Christ. We've seen that already. They've left home. They've left their vocation. They've left security. They're following this traveling rabbi who's doing these amazing things, but he's not being really well received. And now you start to hear the idea of a plot. Eliminate Jesus. Take Jesus out. As a first century follower, wouldn't you feel like, wait a second, this is getting out of control. 
This is not how things are supposed to be. This is not how Jesus should be received. This is not how Messiah's message should be welcomed. People should be excited. People should be exhilarated. People should be thrilled. People should be comforted. And yet, the more Jesus shows himself off, the more the resistance gains power. And as a first century follower, you may feel like, wait a second, this is becoming chaotic. This is out of control. This is not how things are supposed to be. You may worry. You may fret. You may get sad. You may get depressed. You may get anxious. You can feel the tension in the room. So let me just ask you, how do you handle things when life seems out of control? Kind of take yourself out of the first century world. Just place yourself very easily in your own life. How do you handle things when life is out of control? How do you handle chaos? If I'm honest, I don't like chaos. Right? I like to be in control. I do. Even if it's like a, a painful experience, like I know I'm about to be in discomfort. If I know it's coming, I feel a lot better. Right? If I know I have to go to the dentist, if any of you are a dentist, I'm sorry. Right? One of the most hated professions. Did you know that? Pray for your dentist. Anyway, but if I'm going to the dentist and I know I'm going to experience some pain, not because they're bad at their job, just because I'm a wuss and I have sensitive gums, okay? Right? But I know I'm going to experience pain. But if I, ha- I have it in my mind that it's going to happen, I can psych myself up, right? I can prepare for it. I can, on the way driving there, get jock jams in my ear and be like, all right, here we go, Right? get excited, then get in there, and then, of course, I whimper, and then I cry, and they haven't even done anything yet, right? But if, if I know pain's coming, then I do a lot better when I experience it. See, but that, that, that terrible partner in crime to pain is chaos. When there's pain and chaos, that's when everything goes bad. When there's pain, and I have no control, when it's unexpected— When I can't stop it, that's the worst. I want want you to ask yourself, how do you handle when life is chaotic, when it's out of control, when pain and chaos meet, how do you respond? And here's what I think we're going to learn from our passage today, is one of those things doesn't exist. Between pain and chaos... One of those things doesn't exist. It's not real. It's an illusion. And it's not pain. Pain is there. Pain is real. Suffering is real. Tragedy is real. I don't need to convince you of that. But I'm here to tell you this morning, chaos is an illusion. Yes, life will get out of your control, but life is never out of God's control. So I want you to go to your passage in John chapter 11, starting with verse 45. And here's what I think we're going to see from the passage. As this murderous plot unfolds, we're going to see the plan of God in the midst of man's plot. And if we look at man's plot, what we're going to see is, yes, things look chaotic. Things look out of control. This is not how things should be. This is a tragic moment. This is an evil moment. This is a suffering moment. This is wrong. But then there's going to see, we're going to see the overwhelming plan of God inserted into the plot of man, and we're going to see God's control. If we only look at man's plot, we'll say, all there is is chaos. But when we see God's plan, we'll see, no, chaos is an illusion. God is always in control. And the beauty of this is this is true for you. 
And if you hold on to this principle, that God is always in control and there is no chaos, you can get through any season of pain. So go to John chapter 11, starting with verse 45. The big idea for this morning, the main idea, I believe, of our passage in the Gospel of John is very simple. So if you're only going to write down one thing, I want you to write this down. If you're only going to put one note in your phone right now, if you're only going to tweet one thing on your Twitter or post one thing on your Facebook or whatever, I want you to write this down. The big idea for this morning is this. There is no chaos. There is no chaos. Let me show you this. John chapter 11, verse 45. We're going to see what looks like chaos. What feels like is out of control. Imagine yourself, again, as a first century follower of Jesus Christ. You're following this man who's doing all these miracles, wonderful teaching. And yet this is the response he receives after the crescendo of his miracles in the raising of a dead man named Lazarus. Let's look at verse 45, John chapter 11. It says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary... And had seen what he did, he's speaking of the raising of Lazarus, seen what he did, believed in him. Okay, positive news right here. They just saw a dead guy come back to life. And I would tell you, that's probably the most convincing thing I could think of. If you were trying to legitimize your claim to me and say, you can believe me, I am who I say I am, well, show me. Okay, That guy's been dead for several days. Watch this. Lazarus, come out. Stone moves. He walks out all mummified, right? Here I am. Okay, I don't know. How do you trump that? Right? How could that possibly get any better? So some believe. But look at this. And this is, I would feel like, one of the most surprising things in the Gospel of John is not those that believe. It's those that are in disbelief. Still. What more could Jesus do? This shows us that really the step to faith is not just about evidence. It's about willingness. It's not just, hey, convince me there's not enough proof. No, sometimes what it is, I don't care. I don't want to believe. I don't want to align myself to God. And look at this response. Sadly, verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Tattletales. And that's exactly how we should interpret this, I believe. We saw this in John chapter 5 when Jesus healed the man at the pool of Bethesda, the lame man. And he didn't really like Jesus' confrontation with him afterwards. He was really glad that he was healed. But when when Jesus told him to stop sinning, the man's like, you know what, I don't like this. So he runs to the Pharisees. And he tells them, hey, let me identify who healed me. What is he doing there? He knows the tension that's building. And that tension is just even stronger here. So these people witness a resurrection, and they say, this is bad. We need to go tell mom. Right? It's, we got to go tell somebody. This is not just the passing along of information. This is, they are selling Jesus out. Isn't that remarkable? Look at the debate that then ensues after this. Even more remarkable than tattling on Jesus is look at the debate this inspires among the religious leaders. 
We're in verse 46 still. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and they'll take away both our place and our nation. What's going on here? We have this kind of gathering. It says the chief priests, the Pharisees, and the council. What's the council? The council is the Sanhedrin. This is 70 men. This is the political powerhouse of the Jewish people. They're under Roman rule right now, but the Jews have some sort of authority, especially religious authority when it comes to the customs of the Jews. So they have some political and religious influence in Judea, even though the Romans rule. The Roman governor ultimately was the one who had authority, but he would allow the Sanhedrin, this group of religious people, to kind of orchestrate the affairs of the people. It made it easier for them to rule if the people could look up and see somebody like them. So the Romans loved to have these kind of people in place, middlemen, middle management, if you will. Seventy men. The high priest was the 71st member. He was the one who would kind of break the tie. If there was a debate and it was 35 versus 35, then he would come in and he would break the debate. What are they talking about here? What's the debate about? Notice what it's not about. It's not about, did Jesus perform a miracle? That would be the number one thing on my mind. Well, you're telling me this, this guy brought somebody who was dead back to life. Let's talk about that. I mean, what else is more important? Man, the weather looks really bad. Man, we need rain. We're in a drought. What was the next item on the lift? Resurrection from the dead. Oh, let's wait that. We'll do that next meeting. Right? Why is that not priority number one? But priority number one for them is what? Jesus, you're a problem. If you keep doing this stuff, you're going to cause a political problem for us. You see, Romans, they don't like when their authority is challenged. We've already seen this before. We've seen the Jews rise up, try to strike against the Roman oppressor, And what happens? Rome wins. They kill the leader. They kill the people. They crush the Jewish rebellion. They'll do this before Jesus, and they did it after Jesus. And the council right now, this is what they're most concerned about. Uh Uh-oh, we may lose our power. We may lose our place. We may lose our nation. And we can't do that. So Caiaphas, their great leader, their high priest, their president, if you will, says, I've got a plan. Let me speak into this dilemma. Yes, yes, we're, we're, we're feeling this tension. If we let people just follow Jesus, then Rome's going to come in, then they're going to crush us, and it's going to be over. So here's what we need to do. This is what they decide at their church business meeting. Look at what Caiaphas says in verse 48. It says, If we will not... If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing. Sounds like a great leader. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people. 
not that the whole nation should perish. Here's the plot. What are we going to do with Jesus? They're not reassessing their position. Maybe this guy is a miracle worker. Clearly, he has done this great work. Clearly, he has power. I find it so bewildering that a people who are waiting for Messiah, waiting for a hero, all the Old Testament left us hanging in anticipation for somebody to come, for God's messenger to come, for God's son to come, for God's king to come, for somebody to come and make things right. Then Jesus arrives on the scene and clearly shows that he is the Old Testament Messiah. He is the one they've been waiting for. And yet the people who search the scriptures, who know them very well, are the people that say, I love power more than anything. So Caiaphas, this religious leader, is politically motivated right now. I don't want to lose my power. I don't care what this guy is doing. Even if it is raising the dead, let's kill him. Now imagine you're a first century disciple. A first century follower of Jesus Christ. For some reason, you're near this room. You're near this meeting hall. You're on the outside. Right? Your ear is to the door and you hear it. You hear this, all this rumbling and questions about Jesus. What has this man done? Did he really raise somebody from the dead? What are we going to do about this? What is Rome going to say about this? How are we going to lose our power? How is this going to affect us? Should we be worried? Are we going to be safe? Is it time to panic? And then you hear Caiaphas just yell out this insult. Y'all don't know nothing. You ignorant people. It's clear what we're supposed to do. Kill the one man, save the nation. Imagine if you're a disciple at that point, and you hear that, how your heart breaks. You think about everything that you've left, everything that you've sacrificed. You were hoping that Jesus was this Messiah. You really started to believe it. You started to confess it. You started to align yourself with what Jesus was doing. You felt that his mission was the mission of God. That this was it. This was the time. This was the moment. The king is coming. Messiah is here. And then you hear this plot and you think to yourself, no, this is out of control. This is wrong. This is evil. This is tragic. This is chaos. Or is it? These next two verses are probably one of the most intriguing and confusing verses in the entire Gospel of John. As Caiaphas gives the murderous plot that will take Jesus' life. Look what else is happening. Simultaneously, as man is plotting the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the worst offense in human history, when everything looks like chaos, when everything looks like it's out of control, when everything seems like it is spiraling into a downward direction, look at these next two verses. I find this humorous, and ironic. Look what John tells us is actually happening. And let's read verse 49 again. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man, this Jesus, should die for the people. Not that the whole nation should perish. Verse 51. He didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one children of God who are scattered abroad. 
So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. What? That's one of those things, if you're reading your Bible, you know, nice and slow, you're reading one chapter a day or three chapters a day, and you're working through the scriptures, that's one of those times where you read it and you say, wait, 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 stop. What did it just say? We have the murderous plot of Caiaphas, the high priest. The council cheers. They vote 70 to 0. It says in the very last part of the verse we read, verse 53, from this day forward, what were they planning to do? To put Jesus to death. And in the midst of this murderous plot, what do we see? Prophecy. The plan of God. What's prophecy? Prophecy is God's word, his very word, his exact word, his pure word, given through the lips of men. So you're telling me that God spoke this murderous plot through the mouth of Caiaphas. How do we make sense of that? Is Caiaphas this, this kind of puppet, puppet, you know, like a Kermit the Frog, just making him talk? No, Caiaphas is doing freely his own actions. This is his opinion. This is what he feels is best for the people. And yet at the same time, God is speaking as Caiaphas is speaking. Now, they don't mean the same thing, but they are saying the same words. Caiaphas is politically motivated. God is motivated by redemption. Caiaphas is hoping to murder Jesus. He's hoping this plan will mean the downfall of Jesus. God is saying, no, this is how my son will be exalted. He will be the sacrificial lamb who will take away the sins of the world. You think you're murdering him. I'm sacrificing him. And one vent has two intentions at the same time. Is the crucifixion chaos? No, not at all. Completely under the control of God. And what is God hoping to accomplish? Right, look down at your passage. What is he going to accomplish? John tells us this prophetic word that unintentionally falls out of Caiaphas' mouth. What's going to happen because of this murderous plot coming to fruition. What's going to happen? There will be a sacrifice of God's Son, and what will this sacrifice mean? It says he will die for the nation, and not only the nation, verse 52, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Who are the children of God? In John chapter 1, we're told there are those who believe he is given the right to become children of God. He's going to bring the Jewish nation to himself. But even beyond that, his redemptive plan to bless the globe, all peoples will happen because God's plan will come to fruition. And Jesus knows this. This is how Jesus operates. Like, let's just finish the passage here. Verse 54. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Don't read this as if Jesus is running away. Oh no, there's a plot. Jesus is running away. He's not running away. He's following the plan of God. He's moving to a different region, but guess what? Jesus will go to Jerusalem. He'll do it on this Passover that's about to happen. This is the Passover in which he will die. He's going to this region. He's going to meet with his disciples. He's going to give them one-on-one, in a sense, teaching. Or one-on-twelve. 
and then he's going to pray to his father, and then he'll go back to Jerusalem. He'll be arrested, he'll be crucified, the plan of God will happen, the plot of man will get to its goal. But it will be an ironic achievement, because they won't eliminate Jesus. They'll glorify him unintentionally. Let's finish off the chapter. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. I think it's so ironic here that we have these Jewish people about to purify themselves. I believe this happened a week before Passover. So we're getting really close to the Passover in which Jesus would die, about a week's away. And we have these Jews purifying themselves to honor this Jewish festival. And in this idea of it's time to purify ourselves, what are the religious leaders doing? They're not purifying themselves. They're plotting. How do we kill Jesus? They're not worried about, can I take away the shame of my sin? Can I get ready for this holy day, this great moment where we reflect on the forgiveness of sins? No, they're thinking, how can we eliminate Jesus? And then that plot becomes public. They tell people, if you see Jesus, let us know. We need more tattletales. But Jesus knows exactly the plan of God. He knows there is no chaos. This is not the moment where things are spiraling out of control. Things are falling into play. Now, here's the question. Is this true of every event in your life, in my life? This is true in the crucifixion, that there is no chaos, there is just control, but what about your life? What about my life? What about the tragedy that we feel? What about the pain that we experience? Can we have this same perspective? That even the plots of men may look like they are set against us. That the world is tilted against us. Can we say to ourselves, this may be bad, this may be awful, this may be threatening, this may be suffering, this may be discomfort, but this is not chaos. Can we say that? We can. And Jesus' first century followers said that. Let me show you Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, here's what's going to happen. Peter and John are telling everybody about Jesus. Everybody. This is after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and they are telling everybody about Jesus. And people don't like it. Guess who doesn't like it? The Jewish authority. The funny thing is one of those guys who doesn't like what they're doing happens to be a guy we already know in John 11. His name is Caiaphas, the high priest, again. Now, you've got to think about this guy. He tried to shut Jesus up, Right? He's the one who came up with the plan. Let's kill this guy. The guy who plotted against Jesus now can't get his first century followers to stop talking about him. How defeated is this guy? Like now he's like round two with Jesus. He already lost round one. And now all of these followers just keep talking and talking. So what does Caiaphas try to do again? Man, we gotta gotta keep these guys quiet. So the religious leaders, Caiaphas with them, tells Peter and John, stop it. Stop talking about Jesus. No more. And look at the disciples' perspective. Look what they reflect on. And after their reflection, look at how they pray. 
This is Acts chapter 4, after they are receiving a threat where things look like they're out of control, where there seems to be chaos. Look at their perspective. Acts chapter 4, verse 24. And when they heard it, this is Peter and John going back to the other followers of Jesus Christ. They run back, they tell them about the threat, and then it starts a prayer meeting. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, you Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Look at all of these plans, all of these plots, all these murderous things. In Psalms chapter 2, which is that's quoted from, it says that God laughs at this idea. Oh, you think you can win? It's like playing basketball against my three-year-old son. You think you're going to get a shot off? You can't cross over, Dad. I'm way bigger than you. Throw the ball up. Watch me smack it like a volleyball. Right? That's what he's saying. God is sitting there like, oh, nice plan, Caiaphas. You think you could take my son out? Let's see how this works out for you. All right, look at how they pray. Verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. They were the murderers, the ones who killed Jesus, the greatest crime in human history. These are the murderers right here, the plotters right here. But then look at how they see the plan of God in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Do they see chaos in the cross? No, they see control. And in light of that, look at how they pray. Verse 29, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus and when they had prayed the place in which they gathered together was shaken they were filled with the holy spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness notice how their prayer starts god will you keep in mind their threats doesn't that sound a little soft to you the guys who just killed our leader are now telling us to stop doing what he was doing. They're not going to fine us. They're not going to tax us. What do they have the power to do? Kill us. If somebody was coming after you to take your life, to shed your blood, to rob your lungs of air, how would you pray? Hey, God, will you keep this in mind? I know you're busy. But that's how they pray. Be mindful of this, Lord. How can they pray like that? Again, they bring it up. Hey, we're a little worried about this. This doesn't look so good. Will you keep this in mind? And then what do they pray for? Give us boldness. How the disciples pray like that? Here's how. They're staring at pain right in the eyes, staring at discomfort. 
staring at the threat of death, staring maybe into the eyes of their executioners, knowing what could happen. They know the path before them. They know the cost of following Jesus. They've seen what Jesus' agenda cost him. They know that. Yet staring into that darkness, staring into that fear, staring into that chaos, what do they see? God's control. They see no chaos. It's an illusion. It's a delusion. Right? It's a mirage. It's not there. Man does not have control. Take our lives. We've seen what Jesus can do with Lazarus. We've seen what he's done with himself. He's promised to do it with us. So what are you going to do to me? There is no chaos. Not in the cross, and not in your life, and not in their life. There is no threat against you where you could look at it and say, I am gripped by anxiety because everything is out of control. It's not out of control. There is no chaos, Christian. So what does that mean? Stop panicking and start praying. I have to tell you that I'm a little embarrassed at the Christian response. Not everybody. Not everybody. I don't want to get down on every Christian in the world. (laughs) But I have to say I'm a little embarrassed at the Christian response maybe in the last year or so. And because I think we have panicked. We panicked. Oh, the political landscape is shifting. The ground is not as fixed. Legislation is coming that is not friendly to religious liberty. And all of that is true. And you should pray for it. And you should be, in a sense, worried about it. And you should pray like Acts chapter 4. Lord, be mindful of these threats. And you should be active. You should work for the peace of your nation. That's what Jeremiah the prophet told the people of Israel to do when they were in a different land. Yes, all of that is true. But what you should not do is panic. You shouldn't panic like God is not in control. If Jesus Christ could stare at Golgotha's hill and not see chaos, we should not see chaos. We should pray. Pray, just like in Acts chapter 4. Lord, be mindful of these threats. Be mindful of uh, things might get harder. Christianity may, may become more uncomfortable in our current climate. Pray. Pray about those things, yes. Pray also knowing God may not take the threat away. In Acts chapter 4... Did he answer that prayer? No. Three chapters later, we have what? The end of Acts chapter 7, we have the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr. And that kicks off a big persecution in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Then Saul approved his execution, the stoning of Stephen, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. Did God answer their prayer? No, apparently not. But he did answer the second prayer. What was the second prayer of Acts chapter 4? Give us boldness to preach your word. In Acts chapter 4, we're told right away, what does God do? 
God shows up and he shakes the place. And then he fills his people again. This is not a new baptism. That's already happened. That's the day of Pentecost. But he fills his people with his spirit. And what does it say that they do? They run on an easy course, never experiencing any threat from that moment on. No. What does it say? It says they preach the word with boldness. They're not waiting for their crosses to get lighter. They are asking for their backs to get stronger. If you don't lighten the load, just make me stronger. If it's going to get harder, just make me stronger. If the threats are not going away, give me more resolve. Give me more boldness. That's exactly what he did for the first century church. And I'm praying that's exactly what he does for his 21st century church. What he does for Valley Bible Church. I pray you pray this prayer. You pray in Acts chapter 4 prayer every day this week. Just pray, Lord, shake this place. Fill us with your spirit. Grant us boldness. Grant us boldness. Lord, shake this place. Fill us with your spirit. And grant us boldness to preach your word. That's what we need more than anything. There is no chaos. Therefore, there's no reason to panic, and there is every reason to pray. Now, maybe you're here, and you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're watching us, and it's your first time even encountering a church service. I want you to entertain this scenario. Let's say you're flying over the Atlantic Ocean. You're about midway through your journey. There's ocean behind you, ocean in front of you, ocean everywhere. And at your peak altitude, in the middle of your travel, the plane drops in altitude. You lose cabin pressure. Oxygen masks fall right in front of your face. People start to panic. People start to cry. People are, 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 are calling their loved ones, thinking this might be the last time they hear their voice. Everybody is freaking out. Everybody is panicking. Everything seems out of control. There's no encouraging word over the intercom. Things are just going crazy. Panic. Chaos. And then you look down the aisle and you see this calm, subdued flight attendant preparing the beverage cart. Just doing that. What would you think at that moment? Does she know something I don't know? What am I missing? How is she calm? How in a room of panic does she have peace? Wouldn't you be intrigued? Wouldn't you be a little inquisitive? Where does she get her peace? If you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to tell you that as followers of Jesus Christ, as Christians, we have peace. It doesn't mean that there's no tragedy. It doesn't mean that there's no pain. It doesn't mean that there's no suffering and sorrow. It doesn't mean that we don't experience loss. But we believe that there is no chaos. 
There is just God's control. And I want you so badly to start following Jesus Christ. I want you to follow him so your sins can be forgiven by his death and his resurrection. But I want you to be able to live courageously. To go out no matter any threat. Knowing that there is no chaos. There is only God's control and he is working everything for the good. I want you to have that hope. But you won't have it until you follow Jesus, until you cross over that line and commit your life to him. You can go through any storm with a great sense of peace when you know your God is in control. You can sing always, like we sang today, it is well with my soul. We can say that through any season as followers of Jesus Christ. Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you. Oh, Father, we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the hope that we have. Oh, Father, we thank you that because of your control, you have providentially put together every piece of our life. There is no accident. There is no chaos. There is only your control. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't suffering, pain, tragedy, loss, evil in this world. You've created us as free creatures, able to make choices, and we have made choices that have hurt us. And our sinful choices have polluted this world and made it a fallen world and made it a world of suffering, of tragedy and loss. But you have not left us. You are working everything together for good. Oh, Father, give us the vision of your Son, Jesus Christ, to stare at the cross and say, that's not chaos. That's control. That's God's plan. God's plan always overcomes man's plot. Father, give us that confidence. And Father, I pray. We pray just in concert with those in Acts chapter 4. Be mindful of the threats against us, Lord. There is a reason to worry about the restrictions coming into place, but there is no reason to panic. Your plan is unfolding. And I hope what you find here is faithful servants also asking, would you be mindful but saying, Lord, if you don't take away the threat, just make my voice louder. Make my resolve stronger. If you're not going to lighten the load on my back, give me a stronger back. Give me strength. Give me boldness. Father, I pray you grant that prayer. Shake this place. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and grant your servants boldness that we may speak your word. And Father, for those that are here that don't yet know you, they haven't crossed over that line, oh, how I wish, how I wish they would follow you. They would see, even though their sins are many, they can be forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. By his death and his resurrection, they can find hope. Hope not only for the next life, but for this life. That they can counter any event in this life with a sense of knowing that there is no chaos, only your control. Father, I want them to have that. I don't want them to experience their next tragedy, their next loss, their next suffering without the hope of Jesus Christ. It breaks my heart to watch those mourn with no hope. Watch those suffer with no sense that God is in control. Oh, Father, free them. Free them from that pain. That's the worst. When pain and chaos are mixed, that is the worst. Free them, Father, from that. Draw them to yourself. It's in Christ's name I pray.
Amen. You are dismissed.